Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Thursday, November 11th, 2021. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. And we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. We are going to do that everything. That had some jazz hands on it. Oh, it was nice. I should ha- we should have, um, we don't have much of a soundboard here, but I don't even know what the sound of, of jazz hands would be. I guess just a general applause in the background. We're going to do everything we can not to talk about a cavalcade, a Whitman-esque catalog of challenges, censorship, school board shenanigans, political footballing of critical race theory. Um, at the expense of, of marginalized school readers. Uh, we're going to cover a little bit, but we've got some other stuff to do first. We're coming to the end of a couple of um, repeated reminders. And the two repeated reminders are, <laughs> you do still have chance, chance? You do a chance, bon chance. You still have chance to get your holiday recommend, recommendation request. And not only is there time, but the... Um, the the plane is not so full of requests that uh, you're going to be squeezed out at the bottom. The, the, not infinity more, of course, but there's still time if you're hearing this, you know, Monday or Tuesday of the week of the 14th, 15th. Yeah, that's right. Um, that I think you probably will get um, some stuff uh, addressed there. Also, we're now down to T minus two weeks. Two weeks from today, we will turn off the availability of our fall preview draft episode available on Gumroad. You can go to bookriot.com slash fall draft uh, and look in the, you can also look in the show notes and it's available there. It's pay what you will. You can still vote. I have not tallied the votes. Votes still count. This is a late, this is like California in a presidential election where they're actually not done counting until February. Um, I will not say whether or not it's a fait accompli like the count of Californian presidential elections genuinely, but you can still vote, and I really appreciate all the feedback, especially on the format. I don't. Yes. Do we want to talk about our next Sally into this kind of? Th- we want to wait until we're actually I doing it, or what do you want to do? Wondering that too. Well, I think we've decided enough about it that yes. we can say we. I mean, we really do appreciate all of the feedback from y'all who purchased about the format and the ease or not ease of um, of importing Gumroad into your podcatcher of choice using that file however you wanted or actually li- just listening to it on Gumroad because right. you wished you could import it yeah into your podcatcher of co- choice so we are going to do our seasonal draft as always we're going to do a um books of the first chunk of 2022 we haven't defined the months mm-hmm. of that yet but we'll record that and release it in uh, in early january that'll be available on Gumroad it will be um There will be a floor. You'll have to pay something, but we haven't decided what the floor is. So we're experimenting with that as well. But delivery will be by an RSS link. So you will be able to play it in your podcatcher of choice and then do all the podcatcher things that you want to be able to do to an audio file, like listen to it at the speed you want and save your spot and do all those things. So Mm -hmm. thanks to everybody who let us know about kind of the operational challenges of um, that particular delivery. We're still really early in experimenting with 
how and what kind of bonus paid content we might like to create and that y'all would be interested in doing with us. So we're open to all the feedback. We really appreciate it. And um, I hope that you'll be looking forward to, I think, a smoother process Mm -hmm. for the second round, which is what you want. The second pancake is going to taste better than the first. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to incrementally change and try to offer a little more flexibility. Turns out people who listen to podcasts would like to listen to a podcast like thing like they listen to other podcasts. I know that sounds mm-hmm. like um, <laughs> logic befitting Socrates himself, um, but from a logistical point of view, it's not as obvious. But I think we've got a solution where, but for the want of a copy and paste of a link, you can get um, the episode into your podcaster of choice and experience it much like you would a podcast, including show notes. And we don't have to do the back and forth mm-hmm. about email me and you get the link to everything else like that. I think the other thing we might do I'm thinking about is rather than having people email in, provide a link in those show notes to a Google for form voting. for voting and any explication people like to do. Um, so yeah, that, you know, that can be a little bit easier fun. there. And I guess we should also say, you know, we know that paying for bonus content is not something that everybody is down for or interested in or has in their budget. And we are we're okay with that. We hope that y'all are okay with that as well. There's no hard feelings Mm -hmm. on our end. Um, It is something that's important to us to experiment with from the business side, because that's what we're doing here. Um, So, you know, if you're just like, I'm never going to buy your paid content, that's totally fine. Um, But we don't need an email about it. <laughs> I'll probably ignore it if you just say I'm never going to buy anything. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, we were talking about this on our work call the other day, and it's sometimes hard to remember, even for us who do this for a living, we're an independent media organization that writes about books. Which There's not many of us, and it's no. not easy. If this was easy to do, there'd be more. And we've seen there there are corpses on the in, the information super, by the by the side of the information superhighway <laughs> of People have tried to do stuff like we've done, variations of it, and they either get huge like Goodreads or they tend to go away or get folded into something else. So when you hear us you know, in any of our products or anything that we're doing, messing around with different financial tools, you know, revenue models, mm-hmm. we're paddling, man. There's, there's the, the feet under the duck are paddling. Um, <laughs> right. We're we're independent. And right yes. now we really like it that way. And yeah. being able to connect directly with folks who read the website or folks who listen to the podcasts and who are interested and able to, you know, pay something for bonus content that we are willing to spend more time making outside of the, the time that we devote to already making the content people can access for free, help us be able to, you know, continue growing and continue right. doing this thing that we're really happy to be able to do. So we get it that it's not for everybody. That's okay with us. Let's do a quick break and uh, we'll come back after a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Inez Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. 
Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Anais Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. I'm getting email about Adaptation Nation already. Oh, and yeah? We, there is an Adaptation Nation at podcast.com. If you've listened and you want to give feedback there, you can. The, the feedback people want to give so far is here are ideas of, of, of movies to do, okay? Which mm-hmm. I appreciate. And I think in the future, we may maybe we'll have polls or something if we're wondering what people are more interested. We do have the next eight episodes planned out. So those are locked in. We know what we're doing. I've conscripted Rebecca to do some. I'm going to kind of be traffic controlling for the, I'm going to be on all of them just so we can get everything put together as we're figuring it out. I don't mind the recommendations. Just know that we probably won't take them. And mm-hmm. that's a, and B it's probably on our Google doc already. We have a Google <laughs> doc. There's a, <laughs> a very robust Google doc. Yes. A very ro- uh, sh- show title. Um, <laughs> and, but I thought it would be fun because the, the Dune episode is a lot of fun, and we really enjoyed doing it. And you can find it. Search for Adaptation Nation, any podcatcher you want. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Our first one was Dune. The next one is going to come out early next week. Vanessa Diaz and I are taking on a movie. Not going to tell you what it is now, because I think part of the fun is seeing what it is. Um, but it has, it's, uh, it's, it has a topical interest for this fall, and I'll say that right now. What I thought I would do, Rebecca is tell people some of the shows and movies that are coming out soon that will not be topics of Adaptation Mm -hmm. Nation. Would you like to hear some of what they are? And these are things that people have suggested, and this is a long list by itself. So here we go. I'm ready. If I had remembered this was coming out, it may have been on the list (laughs) earlier. But because of COVID, I'm also not sure... If we would have done it, you know what I'm talking about? Do you guess where I'm going here? No. Station Eleven, the adaptation, I think it's on HBO, starring a mutual fave, Mackenzie Davis, of uh, probably Halt and Catch Fire. Is that still her best known work? We talked about her in The Martian of late. She was in a Terminator movie. Just a really good, fun screen presence. Reminds me of a young Laura Dern. So I don't know if you want to take Mm -hmm. anywhere that um, coloring... 
um, kind of a, there's a doe-eyed sophistication that's really hard to pull off. Anyway, based on them, it's a, it's a limited series, I believe. I don't believe it's going to be an ongoing series. The novel certainly wouldn't support that. I think that would be very interesting to see. And it looks like from the teaser, I'm not, the, the line between a teaser and a trailer and a teaser trailer and a <laughs> teaser for the upcoming trailer is very confusing now. But whatever the, the first look of actual footage we got suggests they've made some pretty interesting changes to it. On a scale of 1 to 10, of 1 being not disappointed at all and 10 being mortified that we're not doing it, Rebecca, where would you put mm-hmm. Station Eleven on our list of, uh, of um, pain of absence? Ooh... I think from my, I mean, personally, maybe a six, more six. than half, but not yeah. deeply. Dev- I'm not devastated that we're not doing it. Right. Um, okay. I'm definitely going to watch the show. Oh, but you I definitely don't are. Have, okay. I think I'm, I'm at least going to try it. I don't have plans to reread the book first. Mm-hmm. Like that was, uh, it was a great read at the time. I also don't know that I want to spend time, any more time right now thinking that I had, thinking about like the possible end of humanity after a contagious virus um, than I spent over the last year and a half. So I just am not going to be a person who's rereading Station Eleven for that reason. But I'm interested in how they've adapted it and in what will stay and what will go. And I'm not going to pass up Mackenzie Davis. So yeah, I think I'm like at a six out of 10 that it's not on our list. But I don't, yeah, I'm not going to cry about it. I think I'm a little higher than that. Okay. Just because I think it has, it has potential to be something people talk about. And one of the fun things about Adaptation Nation is we're sort of, sort of I don't know why the equivocation, we're bro- breaching out into sort of a timely popular culture, mainstream culture mm-hmm. in a way that really no book we can ever talk about is mainstream culture. Like what, the most mainstream book we've talked about literally in the last billion years of doing this is where the crawdads sing and look how that turned out. So... <laughs> You know, it's not really something we, <laughs> we do did them, too often. We've done The Martian and The Da Vinci Code. But, yeah, but yeah. I'm, th- those are like five years after they came out. I mean, That's I'm calling true. day and date. Yeah. Like, we're riding oh, the wave okay, of okay. zeitgeist. Yeah. Sure title. Yeah. Um, riding the wave of zeitgeist. Title or property two is the Rebecca Hall-directed adaptation of Nella Larson's novel, um, Passing, um, mm. about... I think they're, I've read it, read it a long time ago um, when I was in school. It's a really good book. Um, her Harlem Renaissance novel about, I don't remember if they're sisters or friends, but one of them chooses to pass for white and their diverging past and their relationships and what the consequences of that are. Um, the trailer looks great. Their early reviews have been very good and very interesting. Um, I'm not sure if this qualifies as cinematography. I'm not, I'm not really a film expert, but like the, the film grain and what it looks like, the exposure is really high and the contrast is really low. So the skin var- skin tone variations are even more minimized just by looking at it because it's, it's really it's much more harder to tell um, who has different mel- uh, melanin levels than otherwise, mm-hmm. and so it's really highlighting this you know in betweenness and 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 passing around. Um, it's an it's a wonderful book and they're wonderful actors Tessa Thompson and then Ruth I can't remember her last name she was in oh I can't remember it now she was in a couple of things I really liked but really good actresses really good direction and a really good book. The kind of thing that is like art house cinema that we're just going to get on Netflix for free. It's kind of amazing mm-hmm. that you see this kind of stuff. That's true. For me, this is another one. I don't think I knew this was coming out until the, the, the promo started getting up and running like 10 days before. We, we sort of t- stopped the era where we would talk about new adaptation news on this show because that would become <laughs> the news, kind of where we are with censorship. For me, I put this as an eight. This would have been on the mm-hmm. docket. 
yeah, probably would have been next week's episode, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. Doesn't mean we can't, we can't come back to it in the future, but right now that's an eight. Do you have any real, a pre-existing relationship with uh, Passing by Nell Larson or anything of those I read, I have a memory of having read maybe an excerpt of Passing mm-hmm. in college. Um, I don't think I've read the whole book. I do really like Tessa Thompson, and I also cannot remember the name of the other actress. Yeah. Um, but I've, I'm in the same place that you are where I didn't know that it was coming out until the promos really ramped up, and I'm very interested. I will definitely be watching myself, and there's... I mean, it's going to be a rich text for conversation of all sorts. I think I'm probably with you on mm-hmm. uh, the the eight or nine level of if we had had that on our radar when we were setting this first lineup of Adaptation Nation, it would have been on the list. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I name is say this. Uh, how, where the crawdad scene? I mean, when where the crawdad scene comes out. I think we're going to probably do it, actually. It's not on the list because it's not coming out now, but someone yeah. said, oh, my God, you guys have to talk about There's... where the, the crawdad sings when it comes out. And the spirit of this is not to – I don't want to be the person. None of us want to be the person that's like, oh, my God, the movie's terrible. And the nit- I don't think that's interesting. I don't think that's fun. I don't think that adds anything. But on the other hand, it can be fun from time to time. <laughs> well, and maybe it could be better. We talked about it, yeah. right? The movie could yes, be better, or whatever it, it is. Is it a movie it, show? It I could remember. be better. Yes. Like, the, the ways we encounter these kinds of stories are different between the page and the screen. And I think it's very possible that, I mean, possible slash, here's what I really hope happened, mm-hmm. that when writers sat down to figure out how to put this on screen, I hope some people were like, wow, some of these dynamics are real creepy. And yes. it's going to look real creepy. Sometimes stuff that sounds, I mean, I thought it sounded real creepy on the page, but maybe some, sometimes stuff that like doesn't hit your radar mm-hmm. for being creepy on the page once you see it comes across yeah. more effectively. And so I'm, I think it's very possible that this movie is better than the book. Uh, another one that's coming out soon. Let me see. When did I have a day here? Um, the Tender Bar, which I mentioned before by oh, J.R. Yeah. Moringer, mm-hmm. um, starring Ben Affleck, directed by um, his royal coolness, George Clooney. Um, <laughs> I I really like this book. I think the movie has a chance to be better than the book because there's big pieces of the book frankly that I don't care about and it's mainly the main character it's it's a memoir so that the author's love life stuff is much less interesting than the mm. hangers on of this particular bar in Manhasset in like the 60s through the 90s and everything that goes on there and the character that Ben Affleck is playing it's like his character in Goodwill Hunting grown up if his character in Goodwill Hunting grew up and ran a bar in Long Island that's who this character is so it's I, I'm not sure that Affleck has to be fully conscious to play this role and still be great at it. I'm looking forward to it directly. One, I'm going to do a mini adaptation now right here. The biggest change, weirdly, I think, already by casting Affleck is the, the, the actual guy's name is Uncle Charlie, and I don't remember his last name from the book. The actual guy has alopecia, so he's got no mm. hair, no eyebrows, no hair on his head, no beard, and they clearly didn't make Affleck no. um, do some very intensive prosthetic or waxing or whatever he wants you to do and it does change the dynamic a little bit because that's, mm. because that's part of his character but I don't think it's necessary to capture the spirit of that character I think there's a very good chance that Affleck will get an Academy Award nomination for supporting actor oh, for this role okay. the, the, the role is too good it's too it's everything you want from Affleck like it's smart but also a little down on his luck but he also hasn't given up and he's smart he's not as smart he's smarter than you think he is right or he plays mm. 
And there's also an acknowledge that he's not the smartest guy in the room because Damon's always sort of behind him. Right. But like even this character, I, I'm so excited to see Affleck in this. I I'm, I'm, couldn't be more excited to see Affleck. Um, I'm really curious role. about that one. So I haven't anyway. read the book. Yeah. I it, forgot to Google the trailer after you mentioned it on a previous episode. So I'm, I trust your judgment, though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's on Netflix. It's going to come out. Or no, I think is it, it doesn't matter. It's Apple TV, Amazon, one of those that you're going to get. One of those. Um, pretty quick. Uh, let's see. There's a couple. The White Tiger. This is out January 22nd. It came out. We weren't going to talk about it. It was too early in the year. Um, but some folks wrote that mm-hmm. in. There was Cherry. Like stuff that's already come out this year. We're not going to hurry up to get it. We're going to do backlist for sure. But we're looking for other um, ways to get into it. So passing, okay, that's October 27th. So that's been out for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Boy, I should really get over there and watch that. I think if I say much more else right now, I'm going to do spoilers for things All we right. are going to do. Keep your secrets. Anything else that came to mind for you, Rebecca? The, or do you, you, you probably don't know the schedule. I've, you haven't been staring at it as oh, quite as much as I, I looked at I it. I think I looked at it the day that I agreed to do the thing that I agreed to do with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's a good lineup, but I'm I'm also not going to spoil it. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioning Apple TV just now. You know, we talked about, I think, the first episode of Dickinson when it oh, came here out. Here we go. We okay. Doing, I uh, wondered if you were going to do this at some point. Let's I'm not go. pitching it for Adaptation Nation. I know. I am not. just renewing my pitch for Dickinson as good TV based on literary material. But the, they're in the third season right now, and the Civil War has begun. And in the way that they do, they're mixing in you know modern sensibility with... Mm-hmm you know, things that happened at that time. And it, the dialogue around like divisiveness and what the country feels like is definitely pulling from what the country feels like right now in 2021. And it's interesting to watch something that's creatively made that for me, at least is giving me like enough space to think about some things in a different way or through art where like, I would be uninterested in watching a TV show set in 2021. That was about what politics feel like right now. Mm just interesting it stays weird dickinson stays weird in a great way i don't know i just continue to love it there was a headline on for a piece on the ringer that said uh, dickinson is the best apple tv show you're not watching i'm like i'm sure that's true mm. i agree <laughs> conceded well, i am I'm conceded and i concede you. that point um about that speaking of it's Haley, a very it's a flavor oh, go yeah go ahead. Oh, it's Anything just else? a particular flavor yeah. yeah speaking of Haley, i did consider um and i don't know how close it's going to be but the new Hawkeye series on Apple mm. or Disney Plus, starring Jeremy Jeremy Renner and Haley Stanfield as Kate Bishop. My understanding it's it's based on the wonderful run of Hawkeye, My Life as a Weapon by Matt yes. Fraction and David Aha. Mm-hmm. I don't know how close it doesn't look anything like it in terms of the story, but the dynamic is what you care about. And I did see Pizza Dog, which is very important for those of you who read Hawkeye, My Life as a Weapon. <laughs> uh, Jer- um, Clint Barton's dog is named Pizza Dog, and it's a very important part. And it's a, one of the more beloved uh, pets in all of recent popular culture. And it's a wonderful run. I highly recommend it by itself. It looks wonderful. I'm really looking forward to that show, even as Jeremy Renner is not my favorite actor in the world. But I am here for passing of the torch to Haley Stanfield, Steinfeld as Kate Bishop, a.k.a. the next Hawkeye. So that was another one that was on my radar there as well. Speaking of Affleck... The early buzz on this movie is that it's terrible. Um, it's Deep Water based on the... It's a Deep Water, which is the Patricia Highsmith novel. It's Affleck oh. and Anna de Armas. And I think it's like an erotic thriller. And they oh dated boy. during it. And no. then they mm-hmm. broke up. 
So there could be a rubberneck quality to that. Um, That's, I feel in, very uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> about that. <laughs> this is a, an audio medium, but I am making a face. Yes. And in casting that some straight comes that feels straight out of the 90s, Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson are starring in a romantic comedy adaptation of the graphic novel Marry Me, in huh. which a pop singer marries at random a member of the audience. <laughs> is Owen Wilson the pop singer? No, Jennifer Lopez is. I know, I know. It would just be way better if Owen Wilson Also including Sarah singer. Silverman. So that's how, that's how this is very 90, or late, early 2000s, that is, I guess I would say. That's um, a wacky rom-com premise. I might be here for that. Yeah. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. It could be very bad but it it's also either, like, could be very fun in its own right? way yeah. um so those those are some other ones and there's just so many i mean again i'm not even getting to other ones we haven't done but those are the ones i had some kind of pre-existing relationship in so feel free to email in feel free that you will be you will those uh, emails will probably land on full ears not deaf uh, but full okay let's do another sponsor break <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It really is listener feedback day today. Got a lot of good ones too. Let's talk about the moniker dad books for a minute. Couple people okay. wrote in, especially we got some feedback about the Lincoln Highway Headline, people like it. Also, I looked at sales. Continue to sell. Sold another 22,000 copies in print last week. It's still number four. So we've, we've got a brand on our hands here a little bit. And this is a book people like. And some I'm in a Facebook group, and people really liked it. I, I got a recommendation. I'm not a dad, and I liked it too. This happens, and I'm not sure dad books is something we should use forever and ever. Amen. I think it exists much in the same space right now as the old moniker Chicklet used to. It's a bad title, but people know what you mean. Mm-hmm. I do not have a good replacement, right? What if we if we're not going to call them dad books, Rebecca? What could we call these? Where we well, know what what are we talking about here? We, we need to have sort of the the great reckoning like we had about historical <laughs> fiction. So I'm going to let's talk for a minute here, but I'm going to put okay. out the great call to 
to our listeners to let's take, we can solve this. We can solve this problem of putting a little more definition around the dad book and then come up with a name that doesn't a gender in a way, keep people out, keep people in. What can we do here, Rebecca? How can we figure this out? I have two layers of quibbles All here. Right. And I think the first is, I'm not sure that I would classify the Lincoln Highway as what we're talking about. Oh, as you a dad and the book. emailers too. Okay, thank anyway. you very much. I was trying to get away from this. Okay, tell me why. You, you're probably well, right. I haven't read it that's yet. Just, but. I mean, I haven't read it yet either, but what I know of the Amor Tolls flavor is I think this is more just upmarket commercial fiction. People like historical. He has a vibe for sure. And the publisher is doing a nice job. Like all the covers look pretty similar. So you can recognize there's a visual brand to it as well. But he's popular among the book club set, which is decidedly not the dad set. Um, And when I hear dad book or when I hear the way that like publishers talk about dad books for marketing purposes, that's like your 900 page presidential biography or a history of trains or something Mm -hmm. like that. Well, Um, I'm not saying here that any definition needs to encompass them all like a perfect (laughs) sphere and keep all the other outs. I think of a concentric sphere in which the closer you get to the center, the farther away you get from other things. But things on the edge could intersect. You know, these are all rings within rings. There's a Venn diagram of Lincoln Highway and Dad book um, that I find. Yeah, I agree with that. I think... So to go back to the chiclet example, people, you know, and I was one of them, pushed back against classifying books as chiclet because it sort of denigrated the literary like value and just the entertainment value of books that are about women's lives. Mm-hmm. Rather. And it was, you know, if you were fiction about a man's life, you could just be fiction. But if you were fiction about a woman's life, you were This chiclet. is the great Franz and B. Weiner debates of yes. the early yeah, yeah. 2010s. And some of that has been resolved by just the industry and readers in general treating books about women's lives, fiction about women's lives with more seriousness. Um, And I think some of that's related to how the internet and like coverage of of books of all kinds and of genres have Mm -hmm. opened up access for all kinds of readers. But the term women's fiction still very much exists yeah. in how publishers talk about books and what they used to market as chiclet, they just market as women's fiction now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like these divisions as marketing categories will always exist in some capacity. And that doesn't mean I like them or that I think they should be gendered. But this is how companies that have things to sell try to segment their audience and figure out who they can sell each product to. Mm-hmm. If you don't call it dad books, I think then you end up drawing on what are the qualities we're talking about when we're talking about dads, yep. <laughs> you know, and you come up with something around that. Who's the person who wants to read the 900 page presidential biography or the history of trains or I don't know, big World War II fiction. Yes. Um, it's th- These things are based on stereotypes, which is probably why they don't feel good. Um, and they have some utility because stereotypes sometimes have some utility. Right. So I think that's what's tricky about it. Um, I don't want to support categories like this that are exclusionary in any capacity. I also don't know what you come up with as shorthand. Maybe you just get rid of shorthand and you say, this is a great book for the person in your life who wants to read a 900-page presidential biography. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Maybe we just have to give up the shorthand. Right. And so maybe that's that would be the first way. Is like, what is this category shorthand for? Like, what are the subcategories mm-hmm. of shorthand for? And I, just a couple that come up to mind is like, military history is a classic one. Yeah. Like, what's what's in the middle? Like, the the political biography, historical mm-hmm. biography. But the other thing you have to say about this, and this is the subtext that maybe coming up with something else helps, is it's usually historical biographies of white dudes. Right. right. When we talk about who is the titular dad, it's typically a white, middle-class, educated dad. That's who we're talking about when we call it. And that's why this is because some people, yourself included, other people we work with, like these kinds of books, and they don't fit that category. What are we talking about? It's like, do you like history? Do you like facts rather than feelings is sometimes interesting, even in a fictional context? Now, just because you like it in one situation doesn't mean you like it for all times. But, you know, the military, the military thriller, The Da Vinci Code, which is sort of a dad book on steroids culturally. 100, yes. It's not about feelings. No. Like, do we, does Robert Langdon feel anything other than <laughs> I might die or this is interesting? <laughs> Or gosh, she looks cute with that ponytail. Yeah, which is, is that even a feeling? I'm not even sure what that is. That's like a a, a vague urge. (laughs) Problematic is what that is. I mean, look, a ponytail can be nice and that's fine. But can you have some (laughs) other qualities that you have going on internally or some other relationship to that person? So that's what that this is not the end of this discussion. Maybe Mm -hmm. you wish it were. But podcast (laughs) at bookriot.com. Help me out here. What can we do here? How can can we solve this? Um, To have... To retain the recommendation nomenclature to let people know what someone might like without the other crap that goes along with it. Yeah, I'd love to hear from booksellers and librarians on this. What are you, what's the sign on the display table in the store if it doesn't say great books for dad? We could work backwards from, in terms of the, maybe even the trope definitionally of like looking at a Barnes and Noble table around Father's Day. Like, what are those Mm -hmm. books? Mm -hmm. Like, what do they fall into? Um, Would be very interesting to see there as well. I'm going to, several emails pushing back on the PRH SNS characterization that I dragged you along with and you would read either begrudgingly or willingly. I don't know. I won't speak. I'll give you a chance to back out here after I've given a little context. People have quoted, nice research, by the way, um, Book Riot podcast listeners. I got links. I got quotes saying, see where PRH said this and see where they said that. They want to be a better partner to Amazon or they really are. My theory was the, the, the world, the, the scenario which I support this, that PRH has strengthened its position to buy counterweight against the real monopoly, if there is one in books and reading, which is Amazon. And people said, well, look what they said to the board. Look what the CEO of PR said. We, we want to be an exceptional partner for Amazon. And the other one saying, no, no, this is not at all about um, this. It's about X. Here's what I'd say to all of that discourse. I don't believe any of it. All those, com- <laughs> all those public comments, I don't believe any of it. Those are, those are things. Those are there to, to the do things. Amazon. Yes, exactly right. Yes. Those are there to do things, not be true, if that makes sense. Well, here's what I think. Most of the folks, like the job when you're at the top of a publishing house like this are really in any industry and you have competing interests and you have to have relationships with the businesses on all the sides of those competing interests is that you end up having to talk out of both sides Mm -hmm. of your mouth or many of them do. So they want to be a better partner to Amazon. And they also have PRH reps rolling through ABA meetings, talking to booksellers about how they want to be a better partner to booksellers. It's also possible to want to be a better partner for all of your partners. 
partners, it's less possible to be a better partner for all of your partners when your partners have competing interests. So like Mm -hmm. at some point, PRH has to decide which which way they're going on different issues with the recognition that one decision would benefit Amazon and another decision would benefit the other independent booksellers and just any bookseller who's not Amazon. And they have to weigh the costs of that. I don't think they're lying when they say they want to be better partners to Amazon. I also don't think that's the only thing that they want. Yes. And if I were to close read the we want to be an exceptional partner with Amazon, I think there's a lot more there to suggest mm. resistance than maybe there at first, but they're exceptional, meaning that they can do things that other people can't, right? Mm-hmm. And partner rather than supplier, vendor, thief, you know, whatever you want to use, <laughs> that's a partnership language, which right now PRH, PRH is not a quote unquote partner of Amazon. That is not right. a first among equal situation. Remember, Amazon is a $1.5 trillion company. PRH is a subsidiary of a company most people have never heard of called Bertelsmann. So there you go. But I I wouldn't take any of the comments on anything close to face value because they want to get the deal done. And I think now, again, you might be Jeff. So that means the only thing you would believe them out of their mouths is the thing that agrees with you. I hear that. I know that's a common rhetorical trope. I want to avoid that. But even if they said out loud, the main purpose of this is to provide a counter punch to Amazon. I wouldn't believe that necessarily, you know, that they could be saying that instrumentally in a given reason. So I would be very careful about putting too much stock in what a executive of any company says externally about its motivations, including myself, frankly, in regards to this little company, because you do things that are in the interest of the company. And some of the time that's not being completely forthcoming, forthcoming in a public setting. Um, where you can go sideways on your their their job right now is to say things that get the deal done. Right. Yeah. I think I've watched too much Succession to put much <laughs> stock in what any like yeah. corporate leader of a ginormous company says to the corporate leader of another ginormous company about a deal that they're trying to get right. done. Right. 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 So you know, again, and, and I could be wrong. I could. It could be in there. We could under, be wrong under uh, Funeral Barbatol. Uh, Madeline McIntosh would be like. Jeff, you're so wrong. This is really about getting further into it. We, we would love to just be a, a barnacle on Amazon's ass for as long as we can. And, you know, or whatever, you know, whatever the, the, the actual counter argument to me is. But I don't think that's, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't um, think so either. If that's right. So uh, I feel like, and again, I, I can believe, you know, that on the other hand, I will say this, the public comments are, just be quiet, people. Why, why are we saying all this stuff? It doesn't look great. Right. It doesn't look great at all. I mean, it's at the very least, it's going to be held against you when you do something that it runs against that public comment. Yes. Um, let's do one more sponsor break and uh, talk about some other stuff. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) 
Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You read the Bourdain oral history, right? I did. I am three-quarters of the way done with it on Amazon, uh, Amazon Audible. Uh, we had a couple people ask, interestingly, did you guys say you were going to talk about the Bourdain, or did you, and I missed it? Mm. I talked about my, I think disappointment is too strong, but it's also not too weak, with World Traveler, sort of the um, oh, yeah. finishing in the, the work of... Um, I don't even know what you would call it, kind of a travel guide to Bourdain's favorite cities that Wool ever did by patching together public statements and private notebooks. I didn't think there was a lot of meat on that particular bone. And you had said there's this oral history coming out, and mm-hmm. it looks really fascinating. I don't believe you and I have even talked about this. I would you like to talk about this for a few minutes? I don't think we have, yeah. At first, is the audiobook recorded by all the voices that are in the story, or is it one narrator? The audiobook is a wonderful experience. I don't know if every person that's speaking is that person because Bourdain's okay. mother was dead or dying okay, by right. the time it came out. And I haven't checked. There's a PDF you can get from HarperCollins alongside of it that actually lists the cast of characters. I couldn't mm. find it. And I couldn't get it to work. Okay. I looked briefly this morning. But Christopher Bourdain is Christopher Bourdain. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the chefs and other people you know. Um, it sounds like, um, oh, what's his first wife's name? I can't think of it off the top of my head right now. Kate, I believe. Um, it sounds like it's her. Okay. At the very least, it's multi- there's a whole bunch of narrators, and it sounds wonderful. Uh. And, and I'll say this. It feels like you're at a 15-hour wake for Bourdain. Okay. That's what it feels like. It is unbelievably yeah. awesome. Yeah. I read it when the galley like the day the galley became available mm-hmm. um and as soon as i got i think like maybe 25 percent of the way into it i was like oh i really hope they do the audio with all yeah. these people and i don't know that i need to revisit it enough to listen to the audio but given the choice that's the direction i would go now i thought it was i think it's brave yes um and i really have a lot of admiration for did Wooliver pull that one together too? It's been a It did. Long she enough. did 91 okay, interviews. Yes, Lori Wooliver. Okay. For the amount of time that that takes, yeah. also she must have started that work relatively soon after he died mm-hmm. and I can't imagine what that must have felt like. And I mean, it it did it it felt like going to an extended funeral for Bourdain, listening to people talk about what he was like. I also really appreciated that they were honest about what he was like that the like the so the public idea that we have of anthony bourdain is often i think kind of glamorized and he did some of that himself you know mm-hmm. like the swashbucklingness of kitchen confidential was built on some of this is bad behavior and isn't that cool and over time he appeared like more serious and chastened you know he like aged in he aged 30 years in the time yep. that he was famous and he changed a lot and I think his perspective shifted a lot and hearing people close to him acknowledge some of the difficult and darker parts of his personality some of the ways that he was not awesome to be around um, I think is really important for us to have that when we talk about somebody who's as idealized as he was in celebrity and really brave of all those folks to talk about the relationship that he was in at the end of his life and what what sounds like 
an unhealthy or abusive situation um, with the woman that he was I don't remember if he was married to her, if they were just together um, at the time and how that intersected with his own ongoing mental health challenges. Um, It's important to have those kinds of relationships spoken about and to see how they intersect with people's health and how they can be very damaging and ultimately potentially lead to someone ending their life the way that he did. Um, So I was, I think, just grateful for the whole picture of it and for the really... brave and generous and vulnerable work that all those folks close to him did. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember a section with David Chang in the book talking about how they used to... I haven't gone to that part yet. Oh, okay. There's a moment with Chang where he... Which is interesting having come off of reading (laughs) Eat a Peach, where David Chang talks about how he and Bourdain used to like talk about their problems, like the stuff that they would talk about if they were the kind of guys who went to therapy, but who goes to therapy? Mm -hmm. And Chang eventually becomes the kind of guy who goes to therapy. And we got that reflection and you get to see his arc through Eat a Peach. And it was very interesting to see some of the stories folks told about Bourdain and then the way that he spoke about his own life as the counterpoint to that. What happens if you can't or won't get help? Um, Like there's a lot of cautionary tale sorts of things here, like that his life did not have to end the way that it did. And I think a lot of the hard parts of his life didn't have to be the way that they were Mm -hmm. Um, and listening to people who loved him or who were close to him, explore all of that rather than just put up a shiny picture of this person who, who did wonderful things and made wonderful art and had a positive impact, but letting him be a nuanced real person. I think it was really, it's good. It's good. It's really good. It got me thinking about, my first reaction when I was like two hours into it and I'm like, okay, I get what this is and this is amazing is I want something like this for everyone I've ever been interested in. That was my first yes. response. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, I think there's like nine different things that make this singular or possibly singular in this way. And and let me try these on because I got a couple of theories and let me see what you think. The first, oh, I, let me say this. If you don't have a mental model of Bourdain, I don't think you're going to care about this. If you don't have... Oh, some, totally. Because That's right. Because the... the revelation is maybe too strong, but sometimes not about the stuff with prostitutes in St. Martin. I mean, spoiler alert, but like Mm -hmm. there's a bit of that, but you really need to have your own mental model of the Bourdain that this is circulating around through toward or whatever. Cause that's the most interesting way to look at like, here's the public Tony Bourdain that you see on the show and then here's all the things that went into it. So that, that's part of it is, mm-hmm. as a recommendation or not. Second thing is I think that since Bourdain's um, brand, for lack of a better term, was about radical honesty of a kind, mm-hmm. he said he had, every, he had every vice except dishonesty is one thing, one of the better quotes in the books. I think that provides a tantalizing challenge to the people speaking about him, right? Mm. Tony, you thought you were honest? Let's be honest, right? Mm -hmm. This is what honesty looks like. And part of my own wrestling with it is, does this affirm or reject Bourdain's position as being radically honest about himself? And I don't think there's a neat answer to that. And the other thing is that the line between his persona and himself is so seemingly thin that you move back and forth it very easy. It's much simpler if there is no line, like the person is just who they is, or it's a complete act. What's right. more interesting is this, 
intermediate space where on a moment by moment basis, you don't know if he's being himself or he's playing Anthony or Tony Bourdain. Is he being Anthony yeah. Bourdain or is he Tony? And he moves so quickly back and forth and people around him talk about him sh- shifting in and out of performances, but which is the mask and which is the man? becomes very fascinating to think about. And I don't think everyone has that situation. Like, I don't know that if we got this about, say, Toni Morrison, right? Mm. That we got Fran Lebowitz and her editors and Alice <laughs> Wallace, something like this. I don't, Toni Morrison's fascination is not so much what the people around her can say about the real Morrison, right? Whereas that's yeah. kind of the subject here is what's the real Toni. And I, I don't think, know that's true for everyone. Yeah, I think you're onto something there that, it really matters that we knew Tony Bourdain through the stories he told about yes. himself. And this is a work of other people telling their story about how they experienced him. And so maybe the more interesting comparison would be like a version of this about Fran Lebowitz, yeah. <laughs> who is the, you know, the subject or somebody else like that, who is the, they are the subject of their own work or they're so central yes. to their own work. Their story about themselves is so central to their own work that getting the perspective of the people around them creates this whole other context. I think that it's possible that both things are true, that he believed he was telling the truth about mm. his life and also that he did not appear to be telling the truth about his life to the per- to the people that knew him best because self-awareness is really tricky. Um, and being aware of how the people in your life experience you is not only tricky, but sometimes really scary. And he had some situations where he, you know, employed a lot of these people in this book and there were incentives not to be for them, not to be radically honest with him about himself. So there's also a point where like, if you're not getting real feedback from people about who you are about and what their story Mm. of you is in real time, your story of yourself can become something really different. I will never untangle it, but I agree that that, is that's one of the elements that makes this such an interesting thing to to read or listen to. Also, um, I'm never going to be positioned to be anywhere close to a subject of something like this, but also being the subject of something like this would be literally my worst nightmare. I mean, outside of like <laughs> constant enduring like torture, like physical uh-huh. pain or seeing those I care about in the same, this is my last number overall, my last draft pick for cultural experience. I would like to there's an episode in the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Albert Brooks um, sets up his own funeral because he wants to be around oh to hear God. the things that people are going to say about him. So they like plan a party at his house and Larry David is supposed to be the, like the MC of the funeral. And Brooks is upstairs watching the whole thing on like closed circuit TV. And, you know, it's Curb Your Enthusiasm. So it goes sideways but he does not get to hear the glowing things that he thinks he's going to hear at his own funeral and i had that same thought of like if i ever got famous enough that somebody would do this about me when i was dead i'm glad i would be dead and would never know (laughs) it would be a wonderful occasion to be dead if you knew something like this was coming out (laughs) if you weren't dead before it happened you would be dead after it came out it, it does make me wonder like one thing i part of the coolness of the Bourdain persona as it he performed okayness with talking about his warts right mm-hmm. which this is the ultimate test of that if he were alive or if he somehow knew would he approve quote unquote approve of this project it's not as obvious to me it's not as obvious mm. to me um, and I don't know it's just up to the line of a kind of 
personal voyeurism that made me pleasantly uncomfortable to interrogate my own relationship to it, I would say. Mm-hmm. What does it matter that, you know, his first wife's, his divorce from his first wife and what happened there? Like, why, why am I so interested in this? Why do, this is, this, what does this have to do with the, the everything that I like about the the work that he did? And it made me uncomfortable because I'm not typically like a tabloid person um, at all, but I just like, oh, this is what this is. Here's, here's, here's the scratch or the itch that it scratches to some degree. It made me a little uncomfortable, I would say, in a way that was mm-hmm. um, meaningful to me because as much as I think it's excellent and good, is it good for me is a secondary question. I'm not quite, oh. I'm not super comfortable with, if, if that makes I any think- sense. I felt a lot of, I don't know, resistance show up reading about the negative, some of the negative or, you know, less desirable stuff that he did because I did not want, I didn't really want that stuff to be true with how I wanted to think of Anthony Bourdain and what his work meant to me. And so I think if I had to interrogate my relationship to any of it, I would probably have to go all the way back to like, why did I want to read Kitchen Confidential and then the rest of his work? Mm. Because there's some real voyeurism and gossipy stuff to that as well. Like if anything scratched prurient itches for me, it was the stories that he told about his own life. And this felt like a a balance to it of look at, try to see a whole human here in a different capacity that is not just about, a window into a life that seems glamorous or wild or um, just like something that is a dynamic that I'm not going to live. Um, I think he played into the, he wanted to be seen that way. And he played into um, this is kind of prurient and sexy. And don't you want to be voyeuristic about my life? And so I found the speaking from his family and friends to be less of that. And it was harder to receive the, the stuff about the warts of his life Hmm. um, than I wanted it to be. But that felt to me like, okay, this is important. It's important that I don't want to pay attention to this. And so I should, because I want to have a more complete picture. And I guess an honest accounting of who this person was as much as you can get that when someone's not here to revise my mental model, I guess, Hmm. and maybe reconsider the way that I would think about him or at least have it be have a more considered approach to how I would think about him or how I would talk about his work. Yeah, I think your point is well taken that it's interesting to think of this book doing for Bourdain, to Bourdain, about Bourdain, what Kitchen Contrail did for the restaurant industry, especially in New York, mm-hmm. as being a kind of expose. And I think that's fair um, as a comparison in structure. The difference is we all have a relationship or must have a relationship with the restaurant industry that's sort of a moral one. Yeah. Like these are Ecuadorians who are radically underpaid, isn't this? I mean, outside of the other stuff, like there was a real political and social element to it as well. Whereas with Bourdain, like it's not, I don't have any skin in the game here with the, Bourdain's life. And I, that makes me a little, it makes me wonder, you know, it makes me wonder too know, about trading upon a personality to do that yeah, kind of thing, I, commodifying a personality. It's just a fascinating subject, just a fascinating I think the, subject. The biggest question that I have about it is like the heart of the motivation for making this book. And I wonder if, and at the time I wondered when I was reading it, if he had died in a different capacity, if he had died of natural causes. Get hit by or a train. Had, gets hit by a train, has some sort of accident. Yeah. And it's not a suicide in the context of a tumultuous or possibly abusive relationship Mm -hmm. where certainly the people in his life seem to 
they like walk right up to the line without actually saying it of blaming his death on the woman that he was with at the time and of that relationship if there weren't some desire to expose that dynamic and that person would we have this i think that's a difficult thing about this text is that it feels at least to me like it exists in some capacity for the reason of telling that part of the story getting that out and this was the first time that i had read a lot of that take or seen it as concentrated and like here's what was going on it wasn't just that anthony bourdain was a person who dealt with depression all of his life and had mental health struggles this other person was involved and was treating him in a way that the people in his life certainly seemed to think had a a a large degree um to do with Mm -hmm. the choice that he made to end his life I mean, it's it's trying to answer questions people had, including you and I, right? When this yeah. news happens, yeah. like, wait, there's mm-hmm. this is not who we thought this person is. And we thought part of who this person was is knowing who this person was, right? I mean, there's a sort <laughs> of a M.C. Escher-like quality to that relationship. You know, people that didn't know him did, which is they thought they knew him. Where I wouldn't say that about Oprah, right? I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that about a lot of people. It's like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how close do you think your mental model of that or your you know, that cultural representation of that person gives how close it is to who they are, I might have picked Bourdain number one overall, frankly, in the people that I, you know, mm-hmm. celebrities that I have any kind of affinity or affection for, intellectual, emotional, or whatever, I probably pick him number one, frankly. And so yeah. that it ended in a way that seems so surprising and so inimical to the truth-telling nature, not inimical to, but antithetical to the, I thought we knew about this guy and there's this whole other piece. And that walking up to the line is very interesting. Because you could definitely feel, as much as this is revealing, there are still veils under some piece, over mm-hmm. some pieces of it. And I think that's fine mm-hmm. um, and, and necessary. And even in my emotional prudery welcomes it, to be frankly. And I wish that maybe there was a veil or two more over a couple pieces of it. <laughs> emotional prudery is a wonderful show title. <laughs> <laughs> but like, there's a piece where like he's, he's split up from his first wife and his, his brother's family's in town with their young kids. And they're like playing on the beach during the day and having dinner. And then Bourdain's going out to have sex with prostitutes and then coming home when everyone else is waking up. I was like, I think I could have been okay without that one. I think I would have been fine. I think I would have been fine without that particular stuff. But there's other places, you know, especially around his mom and his dad and their relationship. And um, that you can tell that people aren't quite saying, they're saying what they felt for sure, but they're not saying everything that they felt and even their own, the, the real root of the root of their own questions about Bourdain, I think still were unanswered in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, just fascinating. a fascinating set of texts to have that we yeah. have all of the stories yes. that he told about himself. And now we have stories that people who were close to him tell about him. And maybe with some time and some distance, there's an interesting synthesis that can happen mm-hmm. that, we don't we just don't get this very often usually we get just the celebrity and the story that they want to have told and it's unusual to have an opportunity to try to see multiple sides or add shades of nuance to it um and i I wonder if that might shift things in the future if we will get other books like this about other beloved celebrities when they pass or if this is as singular as bourdain's life and career were but it's it is not without its complications i do think if you have a relationship with bourdain's work it is worth engaging with 
I the the last the last sort of more specific note they gave us wonderful stuff or Lori really did wonderful stuff in making sure the piece about the publication of No Reservations or um, Kitchen Confidential pardon me was mm. in the it like about the you know that Bloomsbury sold the reprint rights to Harper Collins and that was a huge mistake like I love that detail stuff that was a whole annotated I would have done if this book had been out when I was still doing annotated like okay can we repackage this somehow because right. the ins and outs in his first two books and they don't sell so they don't come out in paperback and he gets a new age like I was like mama but my dopamine was firing <laughs> um, and all the, probably the only one out there but I'm so grateful because. You know, at some point early in, or right around that time, someone says, I mean, he's doing heroin, like going out of style. Like literally he's going to go out of style if he keeps doing mm-hmm. it. And the success of that book saves his life at that point. You know, and one of one of the people in the book say, you know, I honestly believe if the book thing didn't work out, he would have still been, he would continue to do heroin in the kitchens and move from dirty Italian restaurant to dirty Italian restaurant until he has a heart attack or falls down the stairs or gets killed while he's trying to cop. And I was mm-hmm. like, that is some intense stuff um, yeah. for sure. But the book stuff, it's, it's hard to remember now, even think of it now, that he at one point had to make a decision, are you going to be an author or are you going to be a TV personality? It's mm-hmm. wild to think. And he really did become, a, I mean, that's what he chose. He, he did. Didn't, he wrote mm-hmm. Medium Raw and a couple of things, but those were collections. But he chose TV um, and how it revolutionized food television is fascinating as well. And I, oh, yeah. I have a, such affinity for New York and I lived in New York in the early 2000s and I know a lot of like the New York of Tony fame them where he's walking mm-hmm. around with all these chefs and people. So there's a good bit of nostalgia there. I ex- format wise, I think it's one of my favorite listening experiences ever. And there, and ergo one of my favorite reading experiences ever, just cause I haven't had one like this and maybe other things like this exist. I'd love to know podcast at bookriot.com. There's very little interstitial text on Willever's part of like connecting the pieces. I'm assuming what she did is do extensive interviews with a bunch of different people and then group them by theme or by time. Because like, some people will come in for like one line or even one word, right, Rebecca? Like yeah. someone mm-hmm. will say, yep, that's what happened when something yep. really nuts it's, happened. It's, it's wild really to see. Well done. It's really well done. I would well love done. also, yeah, recommendations for other like multi-cast oral histories on yeah. audio would be great. It's another situation too where the technology, a audiobooks being popular is a thing, but that you can then... You know, someone could record into their phone with a headset. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the technology makes it possible in a way that would have been prohibitively expensive to do. And I'm sure this this was still no no mean feat here, but it does make it more. I mean, even when we're doing annotated, we could do over the internet high quality recordings with people, which wasn't yeah. possible 15 years ago. So there's there's a whole new era brought up here. And then the people, most of the people. I mean, his dad was dead, so they didn't get stuff from his dad who died in '87. But his mom was around till January of 2020. So this must have been a different narrative. I'm going to find that out. But uh, sat for the interview, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, the only person I've recognized so far, I'm sorry, I'm going too long. We'll end up here in a second. The only one person that the the book that I've gotten to, I'm like three quarters of the way through, I think. I'm not, I haven't looked at it exactly. Had the explicitly said, didn't sit for an interview. Did you notice that? Do you remember this? I remember that it was somebody, but I don't remember who it was. It was the person who turned at the new press who turned down <laughs> the piece that eventually went in the New Yorker. Right. Like the one, like don't eat fish on Mondays. <laughs> like that kind of started the whole thing, frankly, got a book uh-huh. deal out of it and everything else. I did mm-hmm. like that. The, I think it was the editor at random house turned down kitchen confidential, or maybe it was Bloomsbury. I can't, I can't remember exactly who, but said of the phone calls, I wish I had back. This is like top five. That's yeah. like, yeah, I mean, you, 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 I'm sure you miss some. You get some too. But anyway, so for those of you who wrote in asking about that, I hope that says your interest. Um, a really a w- wonderful melding of in topic for us 
and also format. Uh, mm-hmm. Really remarkable stuff. Okay, Rebecca, um, thank you so right. much, everyone. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Links in the show notes, bookriot.com slash listen, which includes a holiday recommendation request are still open. Go check out Adaptation Nation. Dune is up, and a new one is coming next week. And, oh, help us help us make sense. Help, help us find a way to reclaim and rename the idea of the dad book. If it's even salvageable, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not salvageable. Maybe it shouldn't be salvaged. Some some ship should stay at the bottom of the sea. Um, Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Have a good one.